This form of Christianity, with all its correct doctrine and outward spirituality, became the new norm in the American evangelical movement. And this is what was passed along to their children, a form without love, a form without fire, a form without the power of a godly life. And the sad thing about the evangelical movement is that it's perfectly acceptable to be loveless and powerless so long as you maintain a form of godliness. There's a difference between an outward show of religion and the inner reality of a life in God. There is an obedience to a standard that seeks to earn points with God in the acceptance of man and an obedience that flows from a love for God and a sincere desire to please Him. Both are clearly reflected in Scripture because fallen men have always preferred religion over relationship. We'll talk about that form of godliness today. I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. I want to give you the scripture from which we get the expression a form of godliness it's quite remarkable paul wrote to timothy but realize this that in the last days difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self lovers of money boastful arrogant revilers disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy unloving irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And that's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Is that not a perfect description of the days in which we live? Steve Gallagher gets us started with number 11 of his 20 truths. A form of godliness does not have the power to deliver from sin. Okay, truth number 11. A form of godliness does not have the power to deliver from sin. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church by my mom, but I quit going when I reached my early teen years. What I received as a child in that Baptist church wasn't enough to hold me when the temptations of sin came along in my teen years, but it did provide me with a solid biblical foundation in life. So when the gospel was presented to me after my life fell apart through drug abuse, I knew what I was hearing was true and I knew only the Lord had what I needed. I think a lot of Christian men in sexual sin have stories like mine. It goes without saying that Christian parents want what's best for their kids. So they raise their kids to believe in the Lord, to understand the Bible, and also do their best to protect them from harmful influences. 
they can and should try to influence them in the right way. But ultimately, following Christ is a personal decision a young person must make for himself. One need only look at the wicked sons of Aaron, Eli, Samuel, David, Hezekiah, and Josiah, all of them godly men, to know that leading a godly life is no guarantee that your child will follow in your footsteps. What happened in the Ephesian church during the first century is a fascinating story about this. The Apostle Paul visited Ephesus in about 54 AD. What he found was a wicked city given over to all sorts of idolatry and witchcraft. In fact, that city was full of demon-possessed people. But when he started preaching in the marketplace, these people started getting saved. They were so impacted by the power of God through Paul's preaching that they immediately began burning their books on witchcraft and sorcery. It was a mighty revival that swept through Ephesus. Those new believers were so on fire for the Lord that they took the gospel out all over the region of Asia Minor. Now fast forward 40 years later when Jesus addressed the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Listen to what he said to these people. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. All those years later, the believers at Ephesus were still solid doctrinally. They still believed in the Lord and held fast to the teachings of Scripture. They still recognized and rejected false teachers. But there was one vital element that they were now missing, a true love for the Lord. Somewhere along the way, it disappeared. The amazing thing is that at the same time their love for God was dissipating, their form of Christianity remained intact. Think of it like a bucket of water with a pinhole in the bottom. Over time, the water drains out, but the bucket remains. That's a picture of people who have maintained the form of Christianity, but whose hearts have drifted away from the Lord. Now take this a step further. By 95 AD, most of the congregation of Ephesus was probably made up of the children and grandchildren of those early believers. Just like American Christians today, those first believers raised their kids to believe in God. They took them to church and taught them biblical truth. But what did their lives tell their kids? That Christianity is a good belief system, but it really isn't worth being excited about. They had maintained their orthodoxy and continued to identify themselves as believers, but the fire of love for God had gone out. So their kids learned to do church without passion and without love, just like they did. So long as they avoided obvious sin, they could give their hearts to the things of the world without concern. And when you think about it, the Christians of all seven of those churches Jesus addressed in Revelation faced the same challenge. Only the believers of Smyrna and Philadelphia maintained their love for the Lord throughout those 40 years. Somehow they managed to stay on fire for God. Their children learned to love God by watching the lives of their parents. But in Ephesus, a cold religious mindset had set in the church. 
And yet for all their religious law keeping, they had forsaken the most important law of all, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Lost love leads to the cold formalism of organized religion. And remember, it was organized religion that put Jesus on the cross. It was organized religion that threatened to rip the early church apart. It was organized religion that persecuted Wycliffe, Luther, Tyndale, the Moravians, and many others. And it was organized religion that opposed every revival the church has ever had. I believe that what happened to the Church of Ephesus has happened in America as well. In the early 70s, a revival called the Jesus Movement swept across the nation. Thousands of young people, disillusioned by drugs, promiscuity, and materialism, began turning to the Lord. My wife and I both came to the Lord during this time. That revival eventually faded and the church transitioned into a time of Christian media and megachurches. Christianity was going corporate. And those early Jesus freaks were now becoming respectable church members. The fire died out for most of them and just like the Ephesian Christians, kept the form of godliness. And they, just like the Ephesian Christians, were no longer interested in the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. This form of Christianity, with all its correct doctrine and outward spirituality, became the new norm in the American evangelical movement. And this is what was passed along to their children, a form without love, a form without fire, a form without the power of a godly life. And the sad thing about the evangelical movement is that it's perfectly acceptable to be loveless and powerless so long as you maintain a form of godliness. And this explains why millions of professing Christians are terribly addicted to pornography and do not have the power to overcome it. The Apostle Paul's prophecy about end time Christians has come true. We have become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So what is the answer? It really is fairly simple. People need a completely new form of Christianity, one that is more than an empty shell of religion. People need an internal revolution to occur in their lives. Without that, there will be no power. But with it, there will be no stopping them. We see it all the time. Men come to Pure Life right out of the ministry and from active roles in the local church. We have at any given time pastors, song leaders, deacons, missionaries, and so forth. They were living a double life, serving in the church on Sunday morning and watching pornography on Sunday nights. Listen to this testimony of how God saved one such man as this. I'm joined in the studio today by James Buckley. James is a staff member here at Pure Life Ministries and like all staff, a graduate of the residential program. James, thank you for being with us today on Purity for Life. I'm happy to be here, Jim. James, you came to Pure Life again like all of us 
to find freedom from sexual sin, but you had a few other life-dominating sins that you were dealing with besides sexual sin. Isn't that right? Yes. Since the age of 14, marijuana and cocaine. Hmm. But age 19, meth and crack, along with hallucinogens like LSD and mushrooms and ecstasy. And by age 25, I was using meth and cocaine intravenously. Incidentally, I didn't start drinking alcohol till I was 21. And even then, it was minimal. Meth is what I wanted most. The door of sexuality was open to me at a very young age. And by the time I was 12, I had already participated in many forms of deviant sexuality, things like incest, homosexuality, bestiality, masturbation, and a strong sexual attraction toward my mother. All of this I engaged in without pornography. That did come later, though, in my early 20s. I had become addicted to sexual pleasure for 10 years before any pornography. But once that first glimpse happened, I was very quickly mesmerized. I would frequent adult video bookstores mm. most, but also viewing hardcore and taboo magazines, VHS tapes and DVDs. I didn't have access to internet porn until 2014. So James, you were struggling with a drug habit. You were addicted to pornography and other sexual behaviors. But you were no stranger to the gospel, and you were not absent from the local church. Isn't that right? Yes, but it has to be uh, times in my early years. So one year before my drug use began, the Lord opened my ears to the gospel at age 13. I knew that I was the sinner that the preacher was talking about. I went forward, said the sinner's prayer, and was baptized the following Sunday. Shortly after, circumstances brought me to live with my father, who did not know the Lord. I was disciplined in the things of the world, and I liked it. And for the next 15 years, I actively pursued and sought and reveled in a sexually deviant, drug-fueled lifestyle. Mm. I never could ex escape the memory, though, of what the Lord did when I was 13, in the very real sense that I belonged with the people of God, yet I pursued sin. So at this point, I was completely absent from the local church. It was in 2002 that the Lord moved on my behalf and brought me to Kentucky through a family that took me into their home to live and grow in Christ. Wow. So it was from 2002 until the day I entered the Pure Life Residential Program in May of 2018, 16 years, that I became very well acquainted with the gospel and local church life. Now, this church that you attended, this was not a mega church or large fellowship where you could easily get lost in the crowd. This was a small congregation. That's right. And you knew the pastor personally. Yes. And he knew you by name. Absolutely. And he knew some of the issues that you dealt with. He very much knew all of them, yes. Did you hold any positions of leadership in your local church? I did. I was called upon to lead worship for church services, outreach ministries, jail ministry, VBS, and other parachurch gatherings and fellowships during the last 16 years. But it wasn't until I came to a local church in Corinth, Kentucky, where I was an active member 
that I was offered a paid position as the worship leader. Hmm. So you knew the gospel. That's right. You were worshiping God. You were leading in worship. Yes. And yet you were struggling hard against sin, but experiencing failure far more than you were experiencing victory. Isn't that right? That is right. Very little victory. And if there was any, I'm quite certain that it was completely superficial and based in emotion. So it, too, seemed to be delusional. Why were these things just not helping? I had a very strong sense that these things weren't working because I simply loved my sin. Mm. I loved myself and I loved my sin. The Bible talks about a form of godliness, an outward display of religiosity that portrays to people that they are spiritually together, that they are mature, that they are victorious. But that's a lie. That wasn't your life, was it? No. The delusion that my continued activity in church and ministry would somehow affect a real change in me was compounded in that I knew repentance is what I lacked. Yet I continued all the more fervently into activity and ministry as if it would actually bring me into a right relationship with God. I wanted to believe it. Every opportunity to serve and fellowship became a forced confirmation that, in my own eyes, I loved Jesus. Mm. But repent was the constant refrain in my heart. But I suppressed the truth and what I like to say, my self-righteousness. Yeah. All right. What finally did help? How did you finally get free? And what was it that made all the difference? I didn't know this before, Pure Life, but I know it now. And so it's a threefold answer. I'd like to just say the mercy of God, mm -hmm. the mercy of God, <laughs> and the mercy of God. His mercy manifested in countless ways over the last 16 years of my pseudo-Christian life has been immense. First, he would not allow me to be destroyed in my sin. And secondly, though I had heard repentance preached at all of the churches that I had been active in and the two private Christ-centered drug rehabs from which I sought freedom before, None has preached it so strongly and biblically as at Pure Life Ministries. I was unapologetically challenged to look hard and deep at what Jesus taught in the Bible about belonging to him, clear and distinct proclamations of what the daily life of a Christian looks like. And there need not be any, be any qualifiers like true Christians or real Christians. No, I think the Bible shows clearly what a Christ follower would look like. It's that self-denial, the cross-bearing, and a willingness to suffer for the sake of others and for Christ. The truth of Romans 2, 1 through 8 had become my personal indictment. And it was verse 5 especially that shot through my heart, and I knew that the Lord was speaking to me. James, he said, because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself mm -hmm. on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
seeing and embracing a side of Jesus in his humility and lowliness to serve sinful man, and then having a sight of him on the cross dying for my sin. No other church or ministry that I've been active in in the past has insisted so fervently for me to look at Jesus on the cross, and that has made for me all the difference. Well, that's a powerful testimony, James, and I appreciate you coming in to share with us what God has done in your life. Thank you, Jim, it's been my pleasure. Jesus called them whitewashed tombstones. He was talking about the leaders of Israelite religion in his day, the Pharisees. When the Pharisees started, they were actually a renewal movement of men who had determined to be as faithful to the law of God as humanly possible. But as Steve Gallagher told us in his segment, often those in the next generation after the revival simply inherit the outward form. Then we end up with a church full of Pharisees. Ken Larkin explains. I'm joined in the studio today by Ken Larkin. Ken is a biblical counselor here at Pure Life Ministries. Welcome, Ken. It's always good to have you here. It's good to be here, Jim. Ken, we're talking today in support of Steve Gallagher's theme from his 20 Truths, a form of godliness does not have the power to deliver from sin. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul warns his young pastor friend to beware of men in these last days, and he describes what men in the church will be like. And he gives a rather frightening list of sins, including lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. And he concludes this list by saying that in the last days, men will hold to an outward form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Again, that's 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. So a characteristic of the church in the last days is that it will be composed of men and women, I suppose, who have the outward appearance of godliness without any reality to back it up. All show and no substance. Lots of religion, no relationship. Now, you've been a counselor at Pure Life for some time, and you're also our intake coordinator. Every man who comes into the residential program is a confessing Christian. And every man has a testimony of how and when they got saved. And yet, every man who comes into the program has been in long-term gross habitual sexual sin. Where is the disconnect? Isn't the issue that these men have an outward display of godliness with no real power in it? That's true, Jim. That's exactly right. Uh, these men that come to us for help can be compared to the religious leaders of Jesus' day when he spoke strongly against them. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and mm -hmm. Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, right. but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Steve Gallagher also writes about this uh, spiritual condition in his book, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy. He says, people with a form of godliness have opted for a Christian existence where they convey to others that they have a viable spiritual life, which they really don't possess. They have exaggerated their spirituality for so long that they have actually come to believe the lie. Mm. Well, Ken, based on your experience as a counselor and of dealing with men as they come into the program, do they know that they are empty and that they are lying, or are they self-deceived? There are a few exceptions, but most men that come into the program are deceived about their true spiritual condition. They know they have a major issue in that they are in bondage to sexual sin, but do not see it as an indicator that they are not really walking with God. They fail to see the spiritual component of their Mm -hmm. sin. But it's clear from Scripture that godly men who are walking with God do not live in habitual, unrepentant sin. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it uh, earlier. Steve Gallagher has an entire chapter dedicated to this issue of self-deception of those who have an outward form of godliness without the power. In his book, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy, now, from what Pastor Steve has written and from your own experience as a counselor, what are some telltale signs that someone is deceived about their own standing with God? Again, that's a good question, Jim. Uh, Their lives will be characterized by a religion of dead works, self-righteousness, outward display of piety. The men that come to us for help uh, are basically living lives of -of out-of-control sexual sin. Right. Yet they tend to be full of pride and very self-righteous. Mm-hmm. When confronted about their true spiritual condition, they often defend themselves and minimize or justify their sin. Right. They claim to know God and are very religious, yet their very lifestyle of sin and selfishness denies the Lord they profess to know and love. In addition, it's interesting to note that many pastors and Christian leaders come to us for help, and their whole lives are caught up in doing what they think is ministry, presenting themselves to others as godly leaders, yet all the time living a secret life of sexual sin. They have actually believed their own lie, that they were walking with God all the time and have been able to compartmentalize their sin in their own minds and just trivialize it as something on the side. They've deceived themselves into thinking that their sin has no true bearing on their spiritual life and their relationship with God. They were living lives of hypocrisy like the Pharisees, clean on the outside, yet dirty within. Now, you've twice mentioned the Pharisees, Matthew 23, and then again, just now you mentioned the Pharisees. So we really are talking about Christian men, we'll call them Christian men, who just have the religion of the Pharisees. Why is Pharisaical religion in the church so very dangerous? Well, I think, again, Steve Gallagher sums this up well in his book, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy. Uh, The things that he mentions specifically is 
this is so dangerous because it reinforces a person's self-life, mm-hmm. their self-love. It's hard to detect. It substitutes false spirituality for the real thing. Yeah. It breeds further deception and delusion. It hinders a person from seeing his need to change and repent. It fosters fear of man rather than fear of God. And it magnifies the immediate dividends while blinding one to the eternal consequences. Wow. And it's interesting, you know, the men that come to us are basically, like we were mentioning, Pharisees are hypocrites, and they're more concerned with what people think than what God thinks. I find it quite amazing to see that across the board, one of these uh, earmarks of this dangerous religion that Pastor Steve mentioned was fear of man rather than fear of God. Right. And it's amazing that men living in habitual sin are more afraid of being exposed in what people think than having the fear of God to prevent them from doing this behavior, the God who sees what they're doing in secret to begin with. Most men typically won't seek help from us or address their secret life of sin until God in his mercy allows their sin to be exposed to other people. Well, keep going. What's another sign that a man has an outward religion without real power? Another one, Jim, is de-emphasizing vital truth. We have men that come to us and they're steeped in some doctrinal belief and they have all these you know, theological frameworks or these systems developed where it's not really dealing so much with the major tenets of the Christian faith, like the Trinity, you know, the virgin birth, the resurrection uh, of Jesus from the dead, his sacrificial death and his blood atonement on the cross. But really, it's they're more concerned with these trivial or peripheral issues. Right. Not that these other things are important, but they're not the main focus of our Christian faith. Things like... Um, predestination or the free will of man, eternal security versus apostasy, or uh, eschatology, end time events, uh, women in ministry, and so forth. Why do men in this situation, why do men in pharisaical religion, and Jesus said this was true of the Pharisees, they minor on the majors and they major on the minors. Yeah, that's so true, Jim. And I would say the first one is very simple. They're full of pride in what they know or what they think they know because they've believed the lie of our Western culture that has dumbed down true spirituality and Christianity to the mere acquisition of head knowledge about God, his kingdom, having correct doctrine. And in addition to this, since they don't have the real thing, a vibrant relationship with God, they compensate for it like the Pharisees did. Mm -hmm. They're overly scrupulous about minor things. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. And then also in their pride and self-righteousness, they failed to realize that true Christianity centers around a vibrant relationship with God. In the heart of this relationship is love. Jesus summed up true religion when he said, you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you got this down, you're fulfilling the law. If you miss this, you miss the whole point of everything that Jesus was teaching. So these men love to argue about doctrine to show to others how much they know, yet they very rarely invest time in loving others in a practical way, in meeting needs. 
They're all talk, but have no action. So there's little to no substance behind what they say and profess to believe. Steve Gallagher wrote in his book that uh, men who have an outward display of pharisaical religion will seldom be found doing ministry at a local soup kitchen for the homeless because he'd much rather be a teacher or somebody on the platform. He's all talk and no action, all doctrine without any real ministry. Why is that? Well, because really their religion is totally self-centered. Right. It's not focused upon God and his glory and the will of God, which would involve loving others and meeting other people's needs. He's more concerned with elevating himself, making himself look good, his own glory, than God's glory, and doing true kingdom work, which is loving your neighbor as yourself and meeting needs on a practical level. Well, one of the things that we've noticed is that so many of the men who come into the Pure Life program, and they fit this very pattern that we're talking about, a form of godliness with no power. They are completely driven by feelings and emotions, and they are not guided by biblical convictions. Tell us what you know about this. I would say very simply, this is just another manifestation of their selfishness. Mm -hmm. Everything in their lives revolves around themselves. Therefore, how they feel is supremely important to them. This is also a product of our godless culture that has placed the thoughts and feelings of people above the truth of God and his word. We've basically deified ourselves. What we think, what we believe, how we feel takes precedent over God, what he thinks, what he knows to be true, and what he said in his word. And this mindset has had a major influence in our Western church. All right, let's get down to some um, practical steps. How do we walk men into real faith out of their delusion of self-righteous religion? How do we do it? Well, very simply, Jim, with confronting them with the truth of God's word. Men don't need someone to feel sorry for them or make them feel good about themselves. They need to be confronted with the truth of God's word, which can alone set them free. So the first thing we need to do to these men that are in delusion is show them their true spiritual condition based upon the clear teachings of God's word. We constantly confront them here with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And I would say this too, you know, that is the catalyst for change. When they begin to see themselves in the light of God's word, this should lead to godly sorrow and repentance. Having been devastated by the bad news, we now lead them to the foot of the cross and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I like to kid around, we're not a 12-step program, we're a two-step program. Right. Repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> And really, that's, that's, that's how simple it is. It's only through repentance and faith in Christ that men can come out of their self-deluded, dead religion and into a true relationship with God and lasting freedom from sin. There is no other way out but the simplicity of the gospel. And again, Jesus himself said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Well, Ken, I think you covered this really well, and I thank you so much for coming in and for your very insightful answers. Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure to be with you today. Are you more show than substance? Do you care far more about keeping your image than being real, transparent, and right with God? It is an easy trap to slip into. 
having this form of godliness without the power. We hope that we've not only pointed out the dangers of it, perhaps we've moved you to take this issue before God and repent of it. Here at Pure Life, our prayer is often from Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.